EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, welcome to the show. It's time to go inside EMS. As always, I'm your host, Chris Sabalero. And sitting in the chair to my right is the man who thinks Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick was a diagnosis, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a diagnosis. Um, uh, that just came to like me, too. Having, How's that for you know, wittiness? How's that for yeah. wittiness? Yeah. That's that's good, man. Kind of like having beer nuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kelly Grayson, what's going oh, on down there in uh, world famous? Did we ever get those Pitkin, Louisiana, straight out of Pitkin shirts? Uh, no, we didn't. I need to. I need to get some of those put out there. You the, should the you Medic should. Solutions World Tour, straight out of Pitkin. I mean, you should uh, make those and put it on your site so people can order them. Yeah, yeah, we need to get those need to get those put out there, man. So if people actually ever came to Pitkin, Louisiana, it's uh it would be um yeah, eye opening. How know, big is basically the, how big is Pitkin, Louisiana? It just Pitkin maybe five, six hundred people. It's not it's considered oh, a census designated area, not even a town. Um pretty easy to find. You just drive to southwest Louisiana toward uh Fort Polk and uh, turn turn east and roll your window down and listen for the sound of banjos. Yeah, as a New Yorker, if I heard banjos anywhere in the South, I would drive faster. What's funny is is I was at a convenience store in uh, Oakdale um, last year. Oakdale's uh, the nearest fairly large town, and it's not large at all. Uh, and this guy comes through, and he's he's all tatted and pierced up, and gauges in his ears, and a uh, nose stud, and and eyebrow rings, and and everything else. And he, you know, to each his own. But uh, he stops at the uh, he stops at the convenience store counter and says, uh, "Hey, can y'all tell me how to get to Pitkin?" <laughs> and this old farmer in overalls like I said, "You don't want to go to Pitkin, boy. Not not dressed like that." You might not make it back out of Pitkin dressed like that. You just just best to just drive on. The <laughs> guy said, "Well, I got Ken there," and he said, "Ken, that claim you." That's so I said, uh, "I said, yeah, you know, well, uh, good luck to you, man." Um, <laughs> That's crazy, man. How'd you <laughs> find? How'd you find that little place? Man? What we do you, don't like your kind around here. What are you doing living in a little place like that? I mean, how'd you find it? How come you're not living in one of the bigger cities and? Because you drive like a well, you one, drive like an hour and a half one way to go to work, don't you? So what are you doing living in the small town of Pitkin, Louisiana? How come you're not living in a bigger town? I mean, because you drive like what an hour, an hour and a half to work every day one way. An, an hour the way I drive it, an hour and a half the way normal people drive it. Uh, um, I don't like concrete and cars and people, uh, so uh, I like living out in the country. Um, as for as far as Pitkin goes, Nancy McGee's uh, um, to blame for that. She found the house on uh, 
a real estate website and told me to, to go check it out, and uh, I did. So uh, it's her charming little cabin in the woods. Yeah, <laughs> she just okay. didn't anticipate how far into the woods it was before she moved down here. That's right. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. It's the History, uh, the History Channel's edition of Kelly Grayson uh, Cribs at Home. You know, Kelly. So one of the things I, I mean, we're, we got we got we got a couple complaints uh, on the show, and I received the email the other day saying, uh, "Chris and Kelly, you guys aren't doing the news as much as you used to." And one of the things that we're trying to do is we we well, kind of mo- we kind of moved away a little bit of the news, Kelly. We tried to make a little bit more content to be evergreen. This way, when people mm-hmm. listen to the show. They're able to, you know, kind of pick up anywhere, and we're not kind of talking about stories that happen, but maybe we need to throw a, a news day in there every so often just so we can chat about the news, and people want to hear our opinions, I guess, on the stories that are going on inside EMS. Maybe we pick some of these stories out, and we kind of talk about how it affects EMS or kind of think about what that future looks like, but I guess we got to meet the uh, requests of our audience, so we may have to do a little news today. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Well, let's start with one that is currently in the news. Florida EMS agencies said they were delayed in school shooting response. This comes from the Parkland, Florida school shooting. And uh, officials said EMS teams who responded to the shooting were told they could not enter the school when they requested access. Uh, Broward County Sheriff's Office ordered them not to go inside. In this day and age, Chris, knowing what we know about school uh, school shooters and mass shooters, um, and how doctrine has shifted to immediate law enforcement engagement of uh, of a mass shooter uh, and and advent of rescue task forces, um, is Broward County way behind the times? Uh, I know that the sheriff's office didn't coat themselves in, in glory or even competence during this deal uh, by their officers staying outside until uh, the Coral Springs uh, Police Department urged them to, to go in there and engage. Um, you know, but they're, they're keeping the EMS uh, folks outside while people are potentially bleeding out. You know, is it time for a rescue task force yeah. uh, kind of training there for, for uh, responders in Florida? Yeah, and I think that there's, you know, again, to sit back here and put our feet on the desk and our hands behind our head and, and uh, you know, kind of play armchair quarterback, we really don't know the specific situations. You know, I, I'm comfortable with some of the folks that work down there. One of our favorite medical directors, uh, you know, is down there as well. I think that they've made some really great strides towards this movement. But again, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it comes down to the purpose of more of a speed than it does a neglect. And, you know, we, we again, don't think that our schools and, uh, and, you know, our communities, you know, our churches are going to be the victims of uh, mass shooting. And we've seen movie theaters, we've seen schools, we've seen churches, we've seen... And we've got to be mm-hmm. able now to start to think about how do we get all those things protected. I think that this is a really great story to discuss because what is the speed of making this warm zone movement uh, common day? And again, you know, we we think about us being the responders who are going to save people who are bleeding out. But are we able to just rush right into an uh, into a school without no, no, knowing? No, you can't go in. You can't go in until you're cleared in. Uh, I'm not putting any 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 blame on the uh, on the EMS agencies. Um, 
uh, clearly they, they, they were available. They just weren't allowed to go in. And, and uh, maybe maybe uh, the public safety agencies like Broward County SO need to shift their, their, uh, their doctrine a little bit. Well, I think unfortunately because of this horrible, horrible incident, there's going to be a lot yes. of changes that come in the United States. And, you know, we've had school shootings before. I mean, we go back almost 20 years, Kelly, to the first one, which was Columbine. It was in 1999. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I think that this movement is, you know, in this day and age is going to change. You know, it's going to be the World Trade Center version of school shootings that really kind of changed the focus. I think there were a lot of things that were looked at. I think there were a lot of things that were noticed. I think there were a lot of things that were overlooked. And one of the things that we're trying to do is, again, you know, we both have some peers down there that uh, were involved, and we're really going to try to get them on the show because we want to be able to talk not specifically about the shooting, but I think we need to talk about the logistics. I think we need to talk about the, the practice. Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about the procedure. What worked well? What didn't work well? What can we learn from this? Because, again... We talk about 500 some on people in Pitkin, Louisiana, and, and the closest town next to you. Um, we have to even prepare those communities because we could now be the targets of these, uh, you know, crazy people who want to make a name for themselves and 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 kill innocent people while they're doing it. And oh, our our local schools do it. Just did a drill on that very thing. Yeah, and I think that a lot of schools do that, and. You know, we really have to be able to, you know, uh, train our teachers to how to deal with those situations. We really need to, unfortunately, horribly, we need to train the students on how to deal with these situations. You know, back when you and I went to school, uh, it was that we had to do uh, fallout drills just in case of nuclear explosion. And I don't know if you had to do any of those, but certainly as I was growing up, uh, we had to go into the halls because those hallways were going to protect us from nuclear fallout. Um, but now the day and age that we're in, it is the students that have to worry about uh, school shooting. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shame that they have to go to school and uh, be concerned about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, we saw we saw a similar problem uh, and delay at the Orlando Pulse shooting, uh, where where EMS uh, was kept outside for quite some time, uh, and uh, still don't know the the uh, whys and wherefores of that. Um, one of the uh, high ranking anonymous uh, EMS official or fire official said that. Uh, in the case of the Parkland, that they're trained in warm zone operations and rescue task force stuff. Uh, the quote is, we, we're trained to go in behind the advance team to engage the shooter. We're trained to get in behind them with a security contingent of law enforcement. Uh, it's my understanding that, that didn't happen right away. There was a delay. Um, so uh, certainly uh, some stuff to get ironed out there in, in, in Parkland. Uh, uh, in both in public safety and in, in society in general, it's a it's a tragedy that uh, we hope never uh, never gets repeated. But I don't hold out much hope for that. Yeah, and I think that as they get things sorted out, we have to be able to be the students of that incident, so we're able to take those lessons, mm -hmm. those successes, those failures, and move them into our own system. Yeah, be ready for that. I'm going to go ahead and get, send a shout out to uh, one of uh, our peers and kind of a, a favorite person of mine, I think an awesome EMS educator, and she has her own podcast called The Medic Mindset, and you know, to all our listeners out there, we know in our hearts that we are the podcast of choice, but there are some great EMS podcasts that are out there, I mean, 
The Medic Mindset is a good show. Uh, Crit Medic with uh, Dominic Wallenzak is another great show. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these are folks that are doing some really great work. And we want to be able to share the wealth of listeners. And The Medic Mindset is hosted by Ginger Locke. And she is a friend of both of ours, Kelly. She is an associate, mm-hmm. prof- she's an associate professor of EMS professions in Austin, Texas. And she's got a great little podcast. And, you know, yeah. There's one that's on the front page that talks about a paramedic reflects on her first year in EMS. And these are the type of experiences that we need to grow from. I mean, you and I sit here and we pontificate on our experiences, our expertise, our failures, our lessons learned. But everybody's got a story and everybody's got things to talk about. And everybody has, you know, uh, the ability to influence somebody in this career. Kelly, we take this approach that we don't want to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to listen to these stories and this expertise. But we really have to come to the conclusion that we get better by the people who are around us, and we've got to be able to say, hey, how do I handle this situation? Yeah, well, you know, that's all, that's all knowledge is, is, is the cumulative experience of, of many, many people. Um, and, you know... It makes no sense not to make use of that experience or to just discount it just because it isn't your own personal experience. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to learn anything in this profession or in any profession, it's it's good to to have a set of uh, of trusted, wise, learned resources and and utilize them whenever possible. And and these podcasts and 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 the social media posting of of the EMS professionals that uh, I respect. Uh, it's something I, I follow pretty zealously, and, and uh, Ginger's uh, podcast is a great one on on the uh, thought processes and the attitude that goes into providing emergency medical care. Uh, and and Dom's uh, on on critical care paramedicine is is pretty pretty sweet stuff as well. So uh, we urge you guys to look those things up out there. There's there's plenty of them out there, and there's plenty of uh, sources of of. Uh, education to to further your knowledge base and your your skills um i'm dealing with that right now brother with with folks that i've got a refresher that i just did uh and 24 people in it and about half of them uh have waited until a month from their recertification period to start worrying about continuing education and they go well where do i get it well you know uh first of all get off the couch as close to two years ago as possible uh and get to working on it but uh, and I'm pointing them at some of these uh, some of these places, even though they, uh, you know, a podcast probably won't offer you continuing education that you can claim, but uh, it'll certainly uh, keep you abreast of, of current thought and, and uh, trends in our field. And I think it's great being able to learn from the man who can fall yeah. down the steps and accidentally intubate Deadly five people. Intubate on, five people on the way that's down. Right. So that's, that's uh, right. If you can do that, I mean, I think that that's awesome. But go ahead and give us one. What do you got? We got a. Uh, this is. A, I want to give a shout out to uh, 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 paramedic Christopher Langdon, uh, saving a woman after a uh, motor vehicle crash severed her arm. This was an off-duty paramedic, and and the story is great, Chris. But the headline is even better because if you just just read the headline, it says off-duty paramedic helps woman after crash severed her arm. Man. That's dedication right there. You know, uh, me, I'll call in sick if I have the sniffles or a little rumbly tummy. Sever my arm, and I'm not going to be at work. But no, this will... 
So, but apparently it was the patient who oh, had the her arm severed. The patient severed her arm. It wasn't the paramedic. Oh, man. It's still a good story, but not near as good as like, you know, oh, the heck with this, you know. I was so, working in the yard. It's my left arm. As long as I don't have to intubate anyone today, I'm good, you know. I'll just, yeah, I'll tie it off. And uh, as soon as you get some relief for me, come on in. Um, but, uh. Uh, Chris Langdon uh, used a tourniquet that he had in his car to save Chris Cassandra Mosley from ble- bleeding to death. This happened in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, Chris uh, showed up on a, a fatal, uh, fatal vehicle crash um, and saved uh, Cassandra with that tourniquet. Which begs the question, brother: Do you carry an IFAC and a tourniquet on your person or in your car? Yeah, I, I do, and I have a little bit of. Uh, I just have some bleeding control stuff. I have some. You know, I have some gloves that I have because I've stopped at many, many accidents. So, you know, Kelly, I think it begs the question. We were always kind of talking, you know, we were always kind of told and we've always kind of said, you you can't carry this first aid kit in your car and, you know, people pilfering the ambulances and having their own IV start kits. And But do we really, now that we have this, you know, this knowledge that we have, should we start allowing EMTs and paramedics to have a first in bag in their car that they're able to give some help when these situations happen without the fear of retribution that we're practicing medicine on our own. And, and, and I'm going to be interested in your thought. I'm hoping you're going to say yes, but I don't think that we take advantage of this enough. I, I don't think uh, things like uh, preparation, wound care, and basic splinting, that sort of thing is really practicing medicine on our own. They're all generally layperson interventions and and. A lot of the things we formerly considered the, the sole province of EMS providers has now trickled down into to layperson care, and I think for the better. Um, I carry a tourniquet on me, um, and, and not just, uh, and that's becoming a, a fairly common thing, particularly in the shooting community. I see uh, most of my, my friends who are uh, into uh, firearms and, and uh, armed self defense and that sort of thing uh, view it as, as uh, if you're going to carry a weapon, you need to carry a tourniquet as well. Um, and, and they all uh, carry uh, uh, carry tourniquets. Uh, some of them uh, even carry two tourniquets. Um, so they're they're prepared for uh, prepared to save a life uh, if necessary. Hopefully not not their own, but uh, someone else if need be. Um, I I just got from a, a, a industry sponsor a a nice little. Uh, Softy tourniquet in a uh, in a flat pack holster uh, from a friend who makes those holsters, uh, and I, that goes on my belt. And just the other day, uh, a paramedic colleague uh, or ex paramedic colleague uh, Jeff Brocious uh, posted in social media that he uh, he was uh, watched a, a woman uh, jerked off her feet, an elderly woman jerked off her feet uh, while uh, tending to uh, walking her dog, and a uh, woman bashed her head on the curb. And uh, he was able to render care and, and uh, get the bleeding controlled um, because he carried a, a first aid kit on his person. Uh, and he hasn't practiced as a paramedic in 10 years. So uh, I think there, there's, there's a role for self-care for everybody, uh, not just EMS. And, and uh, I applaud uh, uh, Christopher for, for having the, the tools and the, the knowledge and foresight uh, to be able to, to save a life even when he's not being paid to do so. And I think that goes to the duty to act. And, you know, uh, it's very, very hard for me to drive past an accident scene and not try to render care. And, you know, I I don't know that I could live with myself if I found out that somebody could have 
uh, you know, benefited from my experience and knowledge, and I didn't uh, give any care. But, you know, I think this brings up just this really good point that we always got to be prepared. We always got to remember back in the day, we were all carrying a pocket mask with us, those little barrier devices on our keychain, just in case we had to give CPR to, uh, you know, people in the street. And I think for us to be yeah. prepared and always be ready to, you know, render that care. You know, I remember one time I mm-hmm. was in a... So just to share a little bit of war story of always being ready, Kelly, and this is one of my favorite stories. We're in a restaurant in Jamaica, and we're getting ready for Hurricane Ivan back in the day, Category 5 hurricane. And uh, we're having an end-of-the-world party, so Appleton rum was flowing... Uh, was flowing <laughs> Like a river? Uh, like a river. And I was in a, a restaurant... And all of a sudden, I hear somebody say, oh, my God, help, he's, he's choking. And I look, and here I am, and I jump into action and, my, uh, you know, rip my shirt open, and I got the big S on my chest, and I go running over there, and I do my best uh, Heimlich maneuver on this guy, and I'm, I'm really kind of jacking him and trying to get this food out, and, you know, I feel his ribs maybe, you know, breaking as I'm doing this, you know, and somebody whispers in my ear, Chris, there's no food on the table. <laughs> the guy wasn't choking. He was just passed out from drinking too much. <laughs> uh, well, true story. I I think the reason I got into EMS was a, a similar episode uh, without the drinking, of course. I was at school function as a, as a sophomore, and a man in a hotel restaurant started choking on his breakfast, and I did the Heimlich maneuver on him, and he, he I cleared the airway. But then he collapsed uh, and, and arrested, and I did CPR until the uh, EMS uh, agency got there. Uh, they didn't have paramedics at the time, uh, or actually, I think they did have paramedics. They were brand new, though. They had an AED, um, and I, I helped them with that. I thought that was a really, really cool thing, uh, and that, that's kind of what got me started in, in EMS. Um, but I carried for the longest time i carried a fifteen hundred dollar thomas als pack uh, in my truck because um when i was if i happened upon a, a an accident or something in in uh acadian's response area which is pretty darn big and and i'm rarely outside of it uh you know i could i could hop on a truck and help a crew and 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 first respond and, and be that sort of thing and be essentially protected under under Acadian's umbrella as long as I'm following their protocols. So I had an episode like that a, a few years back, uh, camping with Katie Beth. Uh, we were coming back from, from getting some firewood, and we noticed uh, a guy on the side of the road, and it turned out he'd been a pedestrian struck by a hit-and-run vehicle. And uh, the dude's airway's compromised. He's posturing. He's in really bad shape. And I uh, called 911, and uh, by the time the paramedics got there, I had the guys – uh, uh, cervical collar on him and and a uh, and his airway secured with an endotracheal tube and everything. But the the funny part of it was was uh, I'm enlisting the aid of bystanders and such as they as they come up to help me take care of this guy. And the state trooper uh, pulled up about five minutes before the ambulance and he said I, I'd like to help but I don't have any gloves. I said go to my truck. There's a there's a box of extra large gloves in a console. So he opens the passenger door of my truck, and my five-year-old daughter is sitting there in a passenger seat. She says, are you going to arrest my daddy? (laughs) He said, no, maybe I'm trying to uh, help your daddy uh, uh, help the the hurt man. And she said, oh, oh, well, okay then. Um, Just, you know, he's a paramedic. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's funny. uh, Oh, well, in that case, it's fine. Yeah, he's a paramedic. Do whatever he tells you to do. You'll be fine. That's awesome, uh, man. But 
Yeah, you need to be prepared. In this instance, Christopher Langdon was prepared and managed to save a life. So it just goes to show. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciblero, the greatest smelling man in EMS, I'm Kelly Grayson. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.